Our way of life is unsustainable. As a leader, I'm not supposed to say that, because that usually will get me fired. Would you rather me lie to you as you've been lied to up until this point? I won't do that. These are words from a political speech written by the guest in today's episode of Dave the Planet. What's he talking about? And more importantly, what does he suggest we do? Find out next. The presidential election in 2024 is probably the most important election in our country's history. You're looking at a Biden-Trump rematch that two-thirds of the country doesn't want. I'm Dave Gardner. I'm running for president. The billionaire class has been taking everything and leaving everybody else to fight for the scraps. You're right to talk about economic growth and restoring that American dream. Gross domestic product has now become a fetish. You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your fairy tales of eternal economic growth. We humans have outgrown our planet. Is growth really making us richer or is it making us poorer? We've got to scale back. We need people to reimagine a lifestyle which requires much less energy and material. Didn't Elon Musk actually say one of the biggest issues that we're facing is underpopulation? Let's not be afraid to talk about overpopulation because it is not about taking rights away from people. It is about giving opportunities to women, children, and future generations. I'm Dave Gardner, independent candidate for U.S. president, and this is the podcast chronicling my campaign. Welcome to Dave the Planet. We've got a planet to save, and the U.S. needs to do its part. Learn more and follow my campaign at DaveThePlanet2024.com. Matt Orsog has been, in his words, looking to help people get off the growth-for-growth-sake treadmill. He created and writes, Degrowth is the Answer on Substack. And uh, there I've seen him write, The point of taking the degrowth path towards a steady-state economy is to put human outcomes above economic outcomes so that we live within our environmental means. He has uh, spent over 20 years in the financial industry. He's got an MBA in finance. He's a chartered financial analyst and has a certificate in investment performance management. Matt, if I understand correctly, until recently, you were a senior director of capital markets policy at CFA Institute, but you're no longer doing that? That's correct. What are you doing now? Well, just to frame things, kind of tell people where I came from. I joke that uh, I didn't think one useless undergraduate degree was enough, so I got two of them. Uh, I graduated college in the mid-90s from the University of Notre Dame up in Indiana. And uh, I got an English degree and a film degree because those were the things that interested me. I fancy myself, I think of myself as more of a storyteller sure. than anything else, as a story person. I, I like stories. That, you know, I'm interested in the human story and business stories and how we frame the title of one of my blogs. And something I really believe in is that we are the stories we tell ourselves. And so that's you know how we see ourselves and the story we tell ourselves, for good or for bad, not always true are the way we see the world, the way we see ourselves. And that's kind of where I started from. And then I realized after a couple of years of working, I should probably get a business degree to make myself a little more knowledgeable and marketable. Mm-hmm. I was living in Atlanta at the time, and I went to Georgia State. Uh, they had a great part-time MBA program. While I was doing that, one of my professors was a CFA charter holder, and I didn't know what that was at the time. And he used the CFA curriculum as our curriculum, as in the, our finance classes. And so after I graduated with my finance degree, I was like, well, I'll move to New York. That's what you do with a finance degree. 
I started getting my CFA charter at the time, ended up getting that in 2003. I ended up joining the CFA Institute itself. Uh, and for those who don't know, uh, the CFA Institute is a global organization that kind of accredits financial professionals around the world. You know, if you have an MBA from Stanford or an MBA from, you know, a university anywhere else, people aren't really sure what that means sometimes. But the CFA curriculum is the same around the world, and it's it's rather rigorous. Mm-hmm. You have to take three exams to get through it, and I, I was fortunate enough to do that in three years. And so coming out of that, I had this financial experience, or education at least, and was starting on my road to financial experience. About 2000 to 2005, I was working for a corporate governance rating firm. And this is just when firms started to think about in incorporating corporate governance in the investment process. And then in 2005, I joined CFA Institute itself, researching, writing, speaking about these issues, mostly in corporate governance. But at that time, the UN started uh, UNPRI, and the term ESG you know, came, into, came into being. Which is? environmental, social, and governance issues and and factoring those governance issues into the investment process. Uh, Now there's a lot of uh, kerfuffle around whether, you know, that's good or not. And and there's an anti-ESG movement, which just tells me it's (laughs) it's succeeded in that and people incorporating ESG in the investment process. And that led me into, you know, the sustainability world. And so for the past 10 years, I would say I was doing more things on sustainability, sustainable business, sustainable investing. And that led me eventually into the degrowth world and understanding what degrowth was. And the quotes you pulled from my blog are, are what I've been thinking about and reading and writing about for the past couple of years. Understanding that we live on a world with limited resources, the flavor of capitalism that we have right now. It's not good or bad, it just is what it is. And what it is is that we're using too many resources, the climate... Uh, catastrophe we may have before us uh, is a result of, you know, us putting too much CO2 and methane and other greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And you can also look at the planetary boundary framework to see the other environmental problems, to put it mildly, we're going to be having in the, in the coming years. And degrowth is an understanding that we need to pull back on our consumption and production and take that degrowth path to a more steady-state economy. I'll, I'll end with this, and then I'll, I'll, I'll stop my, my story, and we can talk more. Uh, but a, a paper came out a couple years ago. It's called The Economics of Biodiversity, and I recommend reading it. Uh, there's three versions of it. There's a 600-page version, that, which I read, which I don't recommend unless you're really, really into <laughs> it. There's an executive summary that's like a couple pages, and then there, I think mm-hmm. there's like a medium version that's like 50 pages or so. Uh, but it was commissioned by the the UK government. And this professor, I think he's at Cambridge, and his name is Dasgupta. It's the, called the Dasgupta Report. Just Google it and you'll find that, or you can do it in the title, The Economics of Biodiversity. And there's tons of great stuff in there. But you know, the, the headline is that we're using 1.6 Earths. We're using our resources as though we had 1.6 Earths to use. And I, I'd say, well, that's fine if we're going to run out of those resources in 500 years or a thousand years, because we can figure it out then. But that's not the case. You know, we're running out of those things now. And with climate change, the use of those resources is making our world more and more unlivable. And that's only going to accelerate as time goes on. So we need to get more to a steady state where we're using 1.0 Earths, you know, because that's what we have. 
And degrowth is a, is a way to kind of frame that, path, taking that path to a more steady state economy. So I'll stop and we can, we can talk about the particulars now more. Well, that's great background. I'm glad to have that. Thanks for sharing that. Now, it seems to me that the subjects that you've just talked about are not typical lunchtime conversation among investment bankers. How does somebody in the financial services industry become so uh, acutely aware and become an advocate for this? You're a little bit of an outlier, aren't you? Yes, but to, to be fair, I was never and, and never aspired to be and probably never could have been an investment banker. <laughs> There's, finance is a vast world. And so, yes, I was in finance. Yeah. And yes, I guess I, you know, I still am. But I think my background is different. I, I come to things from trying to understand them from a broad perspective. What's the story behind this? And that's not in a spreadsheet, and that's not in a quarterly report, and that's not in my 401k statement. You know, I have investments in a 401k just like anyone else. And I realize that, and that's part of the problem that we're in, is that we're all in the system. And we all have, you know, most of us all have mortgages and 401ks, and we want the current state of the world to continue just in a slightly more green manner is kind of what we're being told we should do. And that's true, mm-hmm. but that's not going to get us where we need to go. You know, just greening everything, making everything electric. Yes, do it. Great. But that's not going to get us where we need to go. And that also has its own problems. You know, if we traded out every internal combustion engine for a electric car by 2035. I think I've seen reports where by 2035, half of the new cars in production around the world will be EVs, Uh somewhere around there. And that's fine. But those cars have high usage of uh, metals and rare earth minerals that we just have nowhere near enough Uh to make those. And to ramp those things up is environmentally devastating just in a different way yeah you know it's not putting carbon in the in the atmosphere but it's tearing down forests and it's befouling rivers and all those things and i don't consider myself an environmentalist i'm just a guy who knows the facts and i think that's kind of where i'm trying to with my writing and my research is where i'm trying to get people going because I think if if someone frames themselves as an environmentalist or is framed an environmentalist, then you've already shut off half of the people from (laughs) listening to you, myself included sometimes. Well, damn it. (laughs) (laughs) But anyone who's far on the right or left in any topic and doesn't want to listen to what you have to say and isn't curious about what you have to say, I'm not really interested in. And so I come from things as, if people call me environmentalist, I don't really care, but I don't call myself that because I don't think of things through, well, what's, you know, the environment needs to go first. I think of things as this isn't working. You know, I, I don't know if that, that comes, you know, if that, if people understand the difference. Yeah. So you're saying you're not really uh, a, necessarily a tree hugger, but you are looking, you're looking at the, the facts around uh, right. meeting the needs of, of human beings on the planet. Right. And I try to frame it that way because I think in telling stories, I think you need to meet people where they are. Mm-hmm. and bring things to their front door and and have them not slam the door in your face, you know. And so I try to come to things with like, this, you know, this is the way our world is. These are the facts. This is where we're going. This is the evidence behind that. If someone wants to talk about polar bears, you know, losing ice, I understand that. And I can talk about that as well. 
but I don't lead with that just because my storytelling isn't trying to, you know, pull at the heartstrings. It's, hey, these are the facts. This is the world we're in. This is where we're going. Let's let's do something about that. And a lot of that is environmental just because that's the place we're at. Well, I'm hoping in my uh, campaign for president and in the Dave the Planet podcast that I I get to be heard by people who are way outside the choir, yeah. people who for whom these ideas are pretty new. <clears throat> so assuming we have some listeners who aren't really steeped in this, you said that uh, just kind of greening the economy isn't enough, mm-hmm. and you're writing mm-hmm. degrowth is the answer. So uh, in a nutshell, can you kind of give us a sense of what degrowth really means? Sure. Um, as, as much as I can. You know, there's a lot of different, just like anything, Yeah. there's a lot of different definitions of what it is. Yeah. So degrowth to me is, I can approach it from a couple different ways, but from a finance way, you know, we all learn in our accounting or economics classes, the very simple supply and demand curve of how the world works. So think of our energy that way. You know, if we just swap out coal and oil and gas for green energy, that's the supply. The supply is green. But you also have to think about demand. And that's one way to to define degrowth is the demand side of things. If you swap out all those internal combustion cars for, for EVs, the demand hasn't changed. Right. And the usage of our resources hasn't changed. It's just different. You know, it's still that 1.6 Earth world, but it's just we're overusing these minerals that we don't have enough of instead of putting more CO2 in the atmosphere. And creating those cars has its own carbon footprint as well. Yeah. So, like in the U.S., for example, we're both in the U.S., but this applies to a lot of industrialized nations around the world as well. There's almost as many cars as there are people in the United States. Crazy, isn't it? And so what if we aimed for a world where instead of, you know, we have, I don't know what it is, I think it's like 340 million people or 330 million people. Something in, like in the that. United yep. States, something like that. And we have something like, I looked at it a couple of months ago. It's something like 300 million cars. It's somewhere in that <laughs> park. But what if we had 150 million cars? Mm-hmm. You know, what if we designed our cities to be more walkable, bikeable, busable, drainable, and we designed them to get us moving instead of driving in our cars. You know, and technology may help with this. If you have, say you have reliable self-driving cars 15 years from now, that's not wild, you know, that that could happen. Mm -hmm. Then a family probably doesn't need to own a car at all, or maybe one car. And then one car is, you know, they call on, there's a car company that just has, you know, maybe that's what rental car companies evolve into or Uber evolves into, mm-hmm. you know, who knows? Yeah. Where you're, and I saw a talk on this, I think it might've been Neil deGrasse Tyson was, someone was saying that, you know, think about your car. It's the most expensive piece of equipment that you hardly ever use. You know, you use it to get to work and to get back from work and to run errands. And that's it. Most of the time it's sitting, being unproductive in your driveway or on the street. And it's a few tons. <laughs> yeah. And if you don't need to own that, you don't need to produce you if if we as a society in America can get by with 150 million cars that are shared let's do that like and that's just one way right. that's an example but the the definition of degrowth and I'm going to get this wrong I should have pulled it up but it's it's the conscious downsizing of our ecological footprint and focusing more on human outcomes than economic outcomes and that gets to and the, the quote you read from me earlier was you know, think about 
the GDP report that comes out every month. You know, I remember watching the news with my parents when I was, I don't know, seven, eight years old. And I learned as a child that GDP is our report card for the country, yeah. just like I had my report card. And it was drilled into me just passively, but I just took it in. Yeah. That that's GDP means we're succeeding or failing as a country. And I just took that for granted because that's what I was told forever. It's not some conspiracy. It's just that's the way it was, right? You know, that's, that's the way we, we grew up. And that works to a point. But even the guy who invented GDP back in the 30, and his name escapes me, but you can look it up. Yep. Uh, he cautioned not to use GDP as, you know, the be all end all for how we're doing as a country. It's just one metric. Right. And I caution people, no matter what it is, whether it's economics or your personal life or your favorite sports team, you know, don't measure success on just one thing, you know, because you're, you're bound to miss everything else. And we're still kind of doing that. You know, GDP looking, you know, I read The Economist magazine. I've been reading it for 30 years. But you can see in the back page of every economist going back forever, there's statistics about GDP and other things. And politicians always run on increasing GDP and creating jobs because that's the way, you know, that's what success is. That's the story we've been telling ourselves. We are the stories we tell ourselves, yeah. you know, and that's the story we've been telling ourselves. And like I said, that's fine to a point, but it's not fine on a world where we're running out of time and we're running out of resources and with climate change and other environmental disasters that are impending, we can't do that anymore. We don't have, like, if GDP just grew at 2.5% a year on average, mm -hmm. your economy would double in 35 years. So think of all the resources we need now. By 2060, we would need, we would double again. And then by the end of the century, we would double again. That's not physically possible. You know? I'm not sure you could find anyone who thinks it is. Right. But they don't think about it. But they don't think about that. And so degrowth, and I invite people to go look this stuff up for themselves. Sure, read my blog, but there's a lot of great information out there. And like I said, there's a lot of different stuff on degrowth. I would... I would recommend people look up uh, George Callis, Jason Hickel, Tim Parik, and many others. Just you know, Google degrowth. I wrote a couple of weeks ago on my Substack a list of people to start with. You know, things to start with. Yeah, yeah. We'll put a link in the show notes to that. But essentially, it's it's stepping off the growth for growth sake treadmill and focusing on what we should you know every month what I'd like to see on television and what we measure. And to their credit, the, the U.S. government is starting to do that. I don't know if it's officially an agency or just the White House is looking at that exact question. Like, how do we measure things better rather than or in addition to just GDP? But I think they have like a 10-year mandate, which is much too long. Yeah. But we should be focusing on lifespan, education, health, happiness. You can measure these things. And so if we're a country of people and the point of the country is, you know, pursuit of happiness, which is right there in the beginning, we should measure those things. And it's it's not GDP. And so broadly, that's what degrowth is. But again, I invite people to go explore for themselves and find out more about it themselves. I think Europe, it's safe to say, is ahead of uh, the United States in conversations about degrowth. And there are a number of countries that are uh, farther along in turning to things like genuine progress indicator and using other right. metrics for success. The U.S. seems to be lagging behind on that. And I'm kind of guessing that just 
you know, in finance circles, if you say degrowth or you're known as a degrowth advocate, that you probably get a lot of pushback. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I would say this is just a rough estimate. I've, there's no scientific data behind this because it's just my experience. But uh-huh. I've been reading about this for maybe five or six years, but really writing about it and talking about it for about two or three years. Uh-huh. And I wondered, you know, sure, I wondered, like, is this going to be received well? Yeah. Yes and no. But what I found is about a third of the people probably, you know, give me a strange look and walk away, kind of politely walk away kind of kind of response, like, you're crazy, or like, no, thank you. And that's kind of the reaction I had when I first came across it is like, degrowth, like, no, I don't want to have a, a Great Depression on purpose. That's, te- that's a terrible idea. But then I looked into it more, and it makes sense because we're going to you know fall off a cliff or run into a brick wall at high speeds, whatever metaphor you want to use. Mm-hmm. So we have to change. You know, just keeping on this path isn't going to work. And just degrowth is a path. So that's the first third. I see the first third is dismissive. The second third really gets it and is um, is in the choir. You know, you don't have to convert them. They're already in that choir. And I think another third is very skeptical and gives me that same strange look that the first group did. But then they think about it and they talk to other people about it and they read about it and they're like, yeah, this makes sense. You know, that, that's the journey I, I was on. And I've had more and more people in the past year or so that I first talk about it and they give me a little strange look. And then I, I see them a week later, or a month later, and they want to talk about it more. And so I think that's encouraging that at some point we'll get to the tipping point as a society and not just in the U.S. where this is talked about openly and freely and people are trying to find ways to get to a better degrowth path. And that's that's already happening in some cities and some places, but broadly be more of the everyday dinner table, water cooler conversation. That it's not yet, but that's kind of where I see my role is as a storyteller, as a writer, to get people to understand those things and be more curious about it and go out and find out more on their own. And I'll be a resource for them, but I don't want to tell them what to think. Well, I appreciate you doing that. And I think you're doing a pretty good job of it. I think you do have some good storyteller uh, skills. So, uh, so please keep it up and thank you for that. So you gave that one example of, uh, you know, designing our cities so we don't have to have you know, a car a piece. And you talked a little bit about GDP. Now, I've seen the charts where, you know, the GDP growth curve seems to pretty much mirror the carbon emissions curve mm-hmm. and, and several other curves of some negative things. To me, it seems safe to assume not only do we need to stop worshiping GDP growth, but it might be a good measure of how sustainable our system is if we see GDP growth contract. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you feel about that. I mean, I think that's a part of degrowth, right, is for GDP to actually contract. Yeah. I came across uh, something a couple months ago where I think it was in a survey and someone was thinking about the perceptions of degrowth and and if people want to degrowth or not. And I think it was like academics and thought leaders and and finance and professional fields. I forget what the exact population was. Uh But they phrased it as like continued what we're doing now, GDP focused, and then degrowth or a growth or a growth. I forget how they pronounced it, but it was that's agnostic to growth. Uh-huh. It's like growth can go where it is. I don't care. You know, it's just we we need to get on the you know resource use and environmental 
use within the boundaries. Like I would um, encourage people if they haven't already to look up you know, the planetary boundaries. And the, you know, those are nine boundaries that scientists have put together relatively recently. I think it's about 15 years ago. It was created by folks in Stockholm, I believe. And it looks at climate change is one of them, but so is the acidification of the ocean. Mm -hmm. So is phosphorus and nitrogen use, which is in our you know, fertilizers and, and a lot of chemicals we use, but it gets into rivers and oceans and causes a lot of problems. Yeah. Land use, uh, novel entities, which is mostly plastics and some others. Mm -hmm. But like the goal is to get within that, you know, those boundaries. We've already surpassed six of those boundaries. We're outside of the safe zone of six of those boundaries. And to get within those boundaries, and then another, some more homework for people, you know, look up uh, Kate Raworth's uh, Donut Economics. Yeah. And that's kind of the safe, once you get in those boundaries, there's like a guardrail around that donut, if you will. Mm -hmm. And you're supposed to stay within those planetary boundaries. And what the economy does within that, you know, I don't care, is what they, a growth people say. And, and I, I, I would agree with that. But I think now we need to focus on degrowth to get to that point, I call degrowth a path. It's not an economic system. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. In fact, you've written degrow to a steady state economy. To a steady state economy, yeah. And I've written about, and a lot of people have also written about, you know, people would say, well, hold on a second, Matt. Okay, what magic wand are you going to wave to get us to a degrowth society? That sounds like some utopian nonsense, <laughs> which is, you know, what I would say at first. But think about... You know, the way our economy and lives are structured, it's around growing GDP. You know, it's around working all those hours to make the money, to pay your mortgage, yeah. to put your kids through school, to get your health care and all those things. You got to get that money to grow the pie, to keep growing it, to get more money to grow the pie. And that's fine until it starts destroying your planet, which is where we are. Yeah. So we got to change it. And so some of the things to think about are... Working less, you know. John Maynard Keynes famously said back uh, back in the I think it was the 30s. And look up John Maynard Keynes if you don't know who he is. It's okay if you don't. He's a famous economist from years gone by, long dead. He's talking in the 1930s, and he surmised that by the turn of the century, so around the year 2000, we'd be working 15-hour work weeks because efficiency would get us there. Yeah. Go back even further. In the United States, we had a six-day work week. But Henry Ford was one of the pioneers of getting to a five-day work week because he saw that we were more productive if we worked less. And that's still the case. And with tools like AI and a, and a lot of other efficiency things we could be using. And think about your day. You know, how much do you actually work in a day? And if you look into the science of it and the physiology of it, we're just animals. And if you look around the world, you know, animals don't work eight hours a day unless we make them. You know. Uh, they don't work like that. And we're wired to work a little bit, then rest a little bit, then work a little bit, then eat a little bit. And so we really only, you know, in this research you can find as well, we only have our peak hours of work for about two to four hours a day. Extrapolate that out to a five-day work week, and you've got about 20 hours a week mm -hmm. that you're productive and useful. Yeah. And, and after that, yes, you're still working, but that curve is going down. So... If we embrace that, a four-day work week or a 20 to 30-hour work week, you're using less resources. That's one day less work you're traveling, although you know, a lot of people are telecommuting now. Yeah. You're using less resources. You're spending more time with your family. Hopefully, you like them and they like you. 
you have more time for your community, more time for, you know, and this gets into an, an aging problem, not a problem, but just an aging demographic we have all over the developed world. It would be a nice time to switch to a four-day work week and less work because we have a lot of older people, the baby boom generation, all over the world to take care of. So less use on growing GDP and more resources for care of each other. And that's not some utopian, you know, kumbaya kind of BS. It's just that's how it could work out. And there's other things like universal basic income is another one. There was an experiment in a Canadian town. I forget the name of it. I wrote about it a couple months ago. In the 70s, where under a certain income level, they gave everyone, you know, I think it was $500 or $1,000. And what they saw happen was people's health improved because they didn't have the, the fear of, you know, mental health improve, but also physical health because they didn't have to overwork themselves and travel two hours, you know, to that job and not get any sleep and and all those things. Mm -hmm. Truancy at school dropped a lot because kids didn't have to go work to support their families. Graduation rates went way up. Mm -hmm. The quality of people's health went way up because all these things you don't think about in, you know, a capitalist society we live in is a fear-based society in a way. You know, I don't mean to paint it poorly, but it, it is, you know, you're afraid of losing your job because you got to pay your mortgage and you got to feed your kids and all those things. And this isn't to say that no one should ever work and the government should pay for everything, but there's a balance there. And so things like a universal basic income with job guarantees and a four day work week and universal services, like universal services, like no one has to worry about water or, you know, the basics of food or, or those kind of things are all policies that could go along with taking a degrowth path. Now, that costs more. Do we want to do that? You know, Do we want to have that kind of model? We currently say we don't in the U.S., but look at Scandinavian countries that have models similar to that, but not, not quite that. They're much happier than we are. Yeah. They're much healthier than we are. They live longer than we do in America. Those are all choices that we can or can't make. And just like I say, I'm not an environmentalist, I'm not a Republican or a Democrat. It's just where do the facts take me? And, and that's where I go. And that's what I've seen. So that's the degrowth path is, is those kind of things. Stepping away from thinking about you manage what you measure, measure human outcomes, and then manage them instead of measuring GDP to manage that. Yeah, that's great. And I think a lot of uh, uh, rugged individualists in the U.S. would be afraid that in that experiment that you described in that Canadian city, people would just sit on their butts and not work. They would just freeload off the system. But that wasn't the experience that they had in that city. No. You're going to have bad actors in any system you have. And so, yes, that would happen. A little, yeah. That would happen to a small extent. But where it's been done, and uh, Stockton, California, was another example. They did something similar. Uh, I think it was about a decade later. The town went bankrupt. They had to change things. And they instituted a similar program. Mm -hmm. People can look both of these up. And uh, they found very similar outcomes. Now, I really liked your idea of working less. And you know, my thinking is if our goal is to shrink the economy and in an emergency, we need to do it as quickly as we can without just uh, completely crashing the system, that people need to work less and... In my view, they need to earn less, too, though. And I don't know how you feel about that. But, you know, the more money we make, when we spend that money, that's our footprint. Mm -hmm. If you make enough, then you buy a boat. 
or a second home, <laughs> or you take more transcontinental flights on vacations. Yeah. The world that I think we're imagining is a world in which we are happier. You know, we're not so focused on money, earning money. We're not spending so much time earning money. Mm. So we're consuming less, but we're happier for doing that. Yeah. Are we in agreement on that? Yeah, I agree. I'm a fan of the phrase, people do what they're incentivized to do. And that's totally true. And this is going to sound like I'm some raving socialist, but I'm confused by the worship we have of billionaires here in the United States and many places around the world. Because, yeah. and again, it's an evidence, I'm coming at it from an evidence point of view. Studies show that over a certain amount of income, happiness doesn't really change much. Right. You know, once people have your basic you know, services met, the basic needs met, they know that their children are healthy and safe. You know, that second million, tenth million, hundredth million doesn't matter much. It's a game. Yeah. It's status, it's power. And that's fine if you want to play that game until it adversely impacts society. And that's where we are. Yeah. And so, you know, private jets, you know, look into the private jet industry. A lot of private jets are shared. And so that means if. Dave, if you have a private jet share and I have a private jet share and you want to go to San Diego for the weekend and you do, then that plane is going to be flied empty well, with the pilot back to Virginia to pick me up so I can go to Florida. And then it's going to fly back to you, San Diego, to you to get you. And so, you know, it's very inefficient, you know, use of resources and use of fuel. And once we get more money, we just spend it on more things. And more things that we, you know, generally don't need. You know, how many yachts do you need? How many mansions do you need? I don't care if people are rich or not, and if they earn their wealth or inherit it. It doesn't matter to me. But we're currently in a situation where that excess consumption is hurting us. It's hurting everybody. So let's find a way to get off of the, that path as well. And I, and I don't. I'm not wagging my finger at someone saying you're a bad billionaire. It's just like we live in a society, and you can build a bunker you know, apocalypse bunker uh -huh. all you want, but who's going to, you know, be your staff in that bunker? They're going to be gone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we're all in this together and find a way to change the system. So it's more manageable. And I, I frame this in a lot of the writing discussions I've done is think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If you're familiar mm -hmm. with that, Abraham Maslow was this sociologist who came up with this theory of, you know, we all have basic needs that we need to have met, food and water and shelter, before we go on to kind of the next level of our lives. And things overlap, of course. But at the top of that pyramid is self-actualization. It's, you know, being happy with your life. You know, you're where you want to be in your career and your, your family's healthy and everything. But you can't really get there if you can't eat or you don't have water. So mm -hmm. there's different steps in that pyramid. And that made sense to me. And so I remember coming across it as a kid and I was like, oh, that makes sense. And we're too much, I think, as a society worried about the self-actualization, which I'm not saying isn't important, that we're destroying the bottom of the pyramid, trying to have more self-actualization at the top of the pyramid. And if you destroy the bottom of the pyramid because of you know, the environmental problems we have, where there's less food and less water and less shelter and less security, then the top of the pyramid doesn't work. Yeah. It doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. And, and a really fascinating thing I found out about Maslow a couple of years ago 
is that he went and visited the, the Blackfoot Nation up in Alberta, I believe, in Canada, as part of his research before he did all this. And it's very interesting to read that stuff because he was coming from a very European, individual-centric point of view of living, of how to see the world, of knowing the world. And that was very foreign to the Blackfoot Nation. And they were very foreign to his way of thinking. And he came in trying to make his model fit their worldview. And of course, it didn't work. Because his top of the pyramid was you spend your whole life trying to get to the top of the pyramid to self-actualization. And the way the Blackfoot Nation and many indigenous people around the world look at it is that that's just strange. That, that doesn't make any sense to them. Because you're part of this whole. You're not this individual trying to achieve your thing. You're part of this community and society, and you're part of this whole. And you're born self-actualized. You don't have to earn that. You're just, you're already born that way. And so there's not the point of view of that individual point of view. Mm -hmm. Now, there's good and bad to that. You know, I very much like the individual parts of me and parts of my children and parts of my friends. I don't want anybody to be the same. But again, there's a balance between buying that second yacht because it's going to make you happier when it's not, or accepting that you're part of this whole, then how do you make that work as whether it's just your family or your community or your broader society? And I think there's a balance between those two ways of looking at things, between the individual, how do I get self-actualized as an individual, to how do I make my community stronger? And one of the interesting things about Maslow is that I found out near the end of his life, he thought he needed to revise what he was doing and make something more than self-actualization at the top of the pyramid. And that was being part of something bigger than yourself. That was really the point of everything to him. Uh -huh. And interestingly, he didn't make up the pyramid. That came later. Someone else did that. But it was the top of his you know, self-actualization in his writings was kind of the top of the mountain kind of thing. Yeah. But he, he realized that he probably needed to add more to it. And, and the real point of it all from his point of view, was to, to be part of something bigger than yourself. You know, that's where I try to get people, is to see, it's like, look, be self-actualized all you want. You know, live your best life, but within these bounds. Because if you don't do that, you're hurting yourself and your, your family and your future if you don't. Yeah. There is no self-actualization on a dead planet. Yep. So, Matt, we're not really here today to talk about my campaign, but will you be my speechwriter? <laughs> Just a week ago, man, you published the speech we need to hear from our leaders, and that just blew me away. Well, thank you. I mean, that is a fantastic bit of writing, and I saw in there the speech that I should have delivered when I launched my campaign. So I want to thank you for that, and uh, I would love to go through a number of points that we sync up on so well, but that would just turn this episode into too long of a podcast episode. So what I think I'm going to propose to do is definitely put a link to that in the show notes, send people to that, celebrate that. <clears throat> maybe we schedule another episode to go through that specifically, or maybe I just do that without you if you don't have time to do that. But I just want to highlight that, draw everyone's attention to it. It is it is the speech we need to hear from our leaders that you wrote, and it's phenomenal. Well, thank you. Just a, a note on that. Yeah. You know, I said before, you know, a politician doesn't get elected promising. They, they promise growth. They promise GDP growth. Right. And we need to get to a point where they have permission to say what I said in that speech, what I want to hear, what I think people want to hear. And people do want to hear that. Yeah. But there's this game we're playing where everyone feels they need to stay 
you know, on the path we're on because that's what pays your mortgage. That's what feeds your kids. And it's very scary to change all that. Yeah. And the more we talk about, you and I have conversations like this that get out to people and they have conversations at the dinner table and with their friends and at the water cooler, the more it becomes normalized and they have permission to talk about those things. Think of any big change in politics in our lifetime or past life, you know, from women getting the right to vote to, you know, gay marriage or any intensely controversial thing that thinking of it now, you know, you're like, why was that a big deal? You know, why was that such a, a third rail that you couldn't touch? And so that's what I'm trying to get to with that. I was, I've been thinking that for a long time. I was like, why don't I hear anyone saying this? that's not, you know, in the degrowth world, because I talk to people and, you know, the values of what they want for their lives and their kids are, is in there, but we don't have permission or our leaders don't have permission to say it. And so the more conversations we have like this, the more these, you know, degrowth and, and what's behind it gets out into the zeitgeist, it becomes less scary yeah. and people can talk about it. My frustration with that is exactly why it's the only reason I'm here doing this campaign for president. So let's wrap up. Let's dream a little bit. Let's dream. I'm elected president. Will you be a member of my cabinet? Yeah, sure. I'd, I'd have to check with my family, but yes, probably. <laughs> well, think about what position that would be, because, you know, I think a part of this is that the you know, the president's councils and the advisors, mm -hmm. you know, today, too many of those conversations are about, okay, how do we deliver this robust economic growth so I can get reelected? Mm -hmm. And we need different kinds of thinkers, thinkers like you in the West Wing having conversations about, okay, how do we make sure everyone uh, has their needs met and is mm -hmm. living their best life, but we're not killing the planet in the process? I think the problem is, that needs to come from the top and the bottom at the same time. Mm -hmm. That speech, or something like it, will be delivered by a politician at some point. But it's not today. Because the population as a whole isn't ready for it, isn't there yet. Yeah. And so that acceptance, that tipping point, you know, whatever it is, 25% of the population you know, needs to be mm -hmm. fired up about something before it can really get through to everyone. And to be part of, whether it's you know, voting rights or gay marriage or, or other things, you know that I mentioned, those things need to change in a society enough to where people want that, give permission to politicians to say it. Yeah. And then you have to have leadership that is willing to say it and willing to talk about it. And so I'm trying to help from the bottom, you know, get people educated about it and talk about it. So it's not this verboten topic to talk about and, and people understand what it is. But yeah, I hope that that's the case from our corporate leaders and our government leaders. I know they know about it and think about it but they need permission to say it and take the actions. And so it needs to happen from both the top and the bottom, you know, in a similar time frame. That makes a lot of sense. So um, I'll put lots of links in the show notes, but I know a lot of podcast listeners probably don't ever even look at the show notes. So where can people go to follow your work and read great things like the speech that you wrote? Sure. Uh, just my Substack degrowth is the answer. I'm the only Matt Orsog in the world, so I'm easy to find yeah. on social media. LinkedIn, I'm on LinkedIn a lot, but also Instagram and threads and what used to be Twitter and Facebook. I check all those, but probably LinkedIn is the one I'm on the most. And that's O-R-S-A-G-H. That's correct. Matt, cannot thank you enough. Thank you for taking an hour out of your day-to-day -to, -day to talk with me, but really thank you for writing that speech and thank you for the important work you're doing to try to move that Overton window to where uh, that speech could be delivered by a 
electable political leader before we have crashed the planet. Let's hope. That was a great conversation with Matt. I cannot recommend his Substack highly enough. So share this episode with friends, family, colleagues, your elected representatives, journalists, students, everyone. And don't forget to check out my campaign at DaveThePlanet2024.com. Read about my national project to get out of overshoot. You'll also want to click on Donate, Volunteer, and Subscribe. I really need some donations rolling in so that we can uh, do some advertising and spread the word about, uh, we need to educate more people, enlighten them about things like degrowth. We can only do that with a little bit of help from you in the financial department. So head over to my website, please, and click on donate. It's the only way that we can create a bright future for our kids. Mm -hmm.